This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Robbie Neal, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Robbie is an author and a painter who lives in country Victoria. Her first book was the memoir Sunday Best, developed as part of the HarperCollins and Varuna Awards program. Her latest novel, The Secret World of Connie Starr, is a sweeping novel of Australian life during the Second World War and the 1950s. Uh, Congratulations. This is audio, but I do want to um, give you a nod to that gorgeous cover. It's divine. Thank you so much. Well, of course, I didn't design the cover. That was all HarperCollins and Andy Warren at HarperCollins. For our listeners, describe the cover because it really is quite beautiful. Well, it's um, a gorgeous blue sky with looking at a gorgeous blue sky through the branches of a lemon tree. So it is lovely. It is really beautiful. So firstly, I want to know how you came to writing, where you grew up, and what is it that, you know, at what point did you think I'm going to be a writer? Um, I grew up down in the southern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, I had a a really violent home life. And I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay. Because of that, I lived often with my grandparents and they really inspired Joseph and Flora in the book. So I spent, you know, a lot of time with them. And I now live in Ballarat where my family had also lived. My mother went to school here. And I came to writing by accident. I actually was, I got cancer And my baby was only three when I got cancer and I was told I had three months left to live. And I thought, well, if I die, she and the other children that were older than her, they're not going to remember who I am. So I started writing a biography and I wanted it to be really like a story and to be no holes barred because I wanted them to understand why I was the way that I was and the experiences that I'd had to hopefully help them with their experiences in life. And that became Sunday Best and was a winner of the Varuna HarperCollins Manuscript Award. Wow. Talk to me about your cancer. Talk to me about the moment, the diagnosis. Do you... Are you able to share that with us? Well, it was, look, it's very hard to explain what it's like to be told that you have cancer. It's just like this enormous gaping hole that just swallows you up and it's black and it's dark and terrifying, really. And um, I suppose what I wanted to do when I had cancer was I didn't buy into the whole, you know, have a positive attitude. I had a, I was angry and I didn't have a positive attitude, but I was very active. And I suppose writing for the children was one of the active things that I did to try and cope with the situation. So 
I don't know if I would say that this is common, but I often hear of women who get cancer after they've had a child. Would that oh, be right? Look, it was. I've got the BRCA one gene, so it runs in my family. Um, right. Yeah. So you know, look, I'm the first woman in my family to have the gene to get past 45, Mm. apart from my mother, but my mother got to 62 before she died from it. But, yeah, it it runs in the family. It's awful. Mm. And was the treatment gruelling? Very gruelling, like really gruelling. And I think one of the things that it's hard for people to understand is that you don't, well, for me anyway, I've never really gotten over it because when I came finally out of having cancer, I looked completely different to how I looked before I had cancer. Before I had cancer, I had ringleted curls, you know, coil curls that were thick and black and went all the way to my elbows. And when I came out of cancer, I was now, you know, a 40-year-old in menopause and my hair was thin like an old woman's hair and lost all its curl. I didn't get the chemo curl. I never was able to grow my eyebrows and eyelashes back. Um, I've only got eyelashes now thanks to L'Oreal's eyelash growth but I've never been able to get my eyebrows to grow back. And, you know, my body had been so chopped up. I think I was in hospital 18 times in 12 months or something. It was just awful. Mm. And there wasn't much of me left. I really mm. have felt ever since like a shell. But then, of course, there is the ongoing exhaustion that has never left, uh, just a level of fatigue that mm. has gotten better over the years, but it's never left. And I think that's from the treatment because the treatment was just was just so gruelling. Were you working or something else before you started writing? Did you have another career? Um, I have had quite a few careers. I, I grew up in a very religious family. So in my family there was no, uh, with my grandparents, there was no cooking on a Sunday. There was no reading books that weren't religious. There was no television on a Sunday, no going anywhere on a Sunday unless it was to visit the ill or dying. Women often Um, had to be spoken to before they could speak. Men said grace. Women didn't say grace at the meal table because men were created in God's image. And I was taught all my childhood that my one role in life was to be a helpmeet to my husband, that I wasn't to have a career of my own. And from a really young age, I just railed against this. Um, And I would say to people, oh, you know, I'd like to be a farmer when I grow up, you know, because People are always asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or I'd say, oh, I want to be a minister. And they'd go, well, perhaps you can marry one, dear. Mm. And I really, as I said, railed against this. I went off to, I got into the Victorian College of the Arts, which my parents were absolutely furious about because tertiary education was a waste for a girl. Mm. Then they were very happy because in my first year I got married and became pregnant, so they thought that was fantastic. But then I really disappointed them again by staying at university. So, you know, it wasn't easy and I don't think that my lecturers understood the pressure that I was under um, from my family to give up art and to give up my studies. And, you know, one of the things that happened at art school was two of the lecturers came up to me and um, they they were just horrified that I was getting married and having a baby, you know, well, I wasn't having a baby at that stage, but that I was getting married. And 
I think they must have known something was going on. They actually asked me what I was going to do about contraception when I got married and I told them I was going to leave it in God's hands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God's like that, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, and so you, uh, so you became a painter. Well, I be- actually I did paint. Um, I had more children, so that kind of like made the painting very difficult. But I also went to theological college. I became a minister of religion for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a social worker and you know, the painting never left me. Like there wasn't one day where I didn't sort of yearn to paint. So so then you get a cancer diagnosis that was oh, grueling. I, I had divorced and remarried by then um, because I married my husband I'd only known him for a couple of months. We'd never kissed, but we believed that God had told us to marry. Oh, right. And we managed to last nine years before we divorced. And um, after seven years of that, of singleness, I remarried and had two more children with my current husband. And we've been together for 25 years. So, Oh, lovely. So when you started to write, when you started thinking about writing, you were saying earlier that that was post your cancer diagnosis. I was undergoing treatment. So as soon as I was well enough, I would get up after chemo and go and write. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible story, isn't it? Because um, that requires a lot of stamina, a lot of determination. And I guess it requires a lot of hope, doesn't it? Um, I was just desperate, I think, mm. to onto something that felt real. So, yeah. Okay, so talk to me about your first, what you wrote, which was uh, Sunday Best, I guess. Was that your first yes. published? Yeah. The autobiography. So I kind of feel about Sunday Best, it was a little bit like winning the literary Australian Idol because, you know, I. Um, it opened doors. I the winner of the Varuna Harper Collins Manuscript Awards. I got to work with the wonderful Linda Fennell on that book. Mm. Um, so that was fantastic and uh, it did open a lot of doors, I suppose. I want to go back to how that happened for you. So you, you started writing your memoir and in a way it was a letter to your children because you thought that, you know, things can go either way. And did you know that you had a passion for writing at that stage? Was it something that you always thought you wanted to do or something you enjoyed doing? Talk to me about that because, you know, you don't, can't just pull out 50,000 words out of nowhere, can you? Well, I always did love writing when I was at school. I also, you know, wrote sermons for when I was a minister. Uh, um, yeah. So I'd done that as well. Yeah, look, it, it just happened really. Honestly, there was no kind of like... You know, I was just very lucky I fell into it. So Yeah. Okay, so you start I, writing. I How do you get it to the attention of HarperCollins and Varuna? Well, I, I just <laughs> I actually um, wrote, when I was writing the autobiography, we were desperately poor because having cancer costs a lot of money, even with mm. the public health system. And we really didn't have money for the children to buy Christmas presents. So I wrote 1,500 words about the experience of having cancer and sent it off to one of the women's magazines who agreed to publish it and agreed to pay me for it. And I rang up the um, Victorian Writers Centre and said, look, are they paying me properly? This is what they've just bought. And they said, yes, they are, and we better send you our newsletter. And in the newsletter was a tiny little advertisements for the Varuna HarperCollins Manuscript Award and you needed 12,000 words, which is what I had happened to have written. Um, It was closing. So I tore down to the local post office and it cost me 
$50 to enter, I think it was. Uh, I, I can't remember. There was $50 somewhere and I was really tossing up because we were so broke. You know, can I afford this? Can I afford it or not? And I sent off those 12,000 words um, at the post office and it was in the long list and then it got in the short list and each time this happened, we'd go off to Pizza Hut and celebrate and think, oh, well, that's the pinnacle of my writing career. And uh, exactly. And, um, yeah, then it, it was a winner. So I then got flown up to Katoomba to spend five days working on it with someone from HarperCollins. And, of course, part of winning that award was at that time that HarperCollins got the first rights to the manuscript. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely story. Oh, thank you. How were you feeling by then? Uh, as physically? Yes. You mean after the cancer? Um, look, I was exhausted. So yeah. the whole time I was up, I was exhausted. I was moon-shaped from all the steroids that they fill you with to make your body cope with the chemo. It, yeah, I, it wasn't easy, but, you know. Mm. But I guess, too, I mean, it doesn't take away from the difficulty and the hardship of it, but you land in Varuna post-cancer. And it's we kind of a hired laptop because we didn't have a computer that worked very badly. Mm, mm. But it's almost like winning the writer's jackpot, isn't it? It was a little bit, yeah. yeah. Mm. So I did sort of fall into it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Okay, tell me a little bit about the secret world of Connie Starr. Where did that idea come from? Um, look, for some unknown reason, there's absolutely no rhyme to it or, or, or real thinking about it. I just decided to write three, four books, each set during a war in Australia. So the first one was The Art of Preserving Love, which was published under the name Ada Langton, but is written by me. And that was set during World War One. And then Connie Star is the second one, which is set during... World War II, and then the third one, which is not published yet, is set, but I've written it, is set during the Vietnam War, and then I want to go back and write one during the colonialisation of Australia. 
And so had you thought about genre? Had you thought about writing historical fiction? Um, I don't think of it as historical fiction. I don't really think of it as, you know, I did have someone tell me that my writing is genreless and that that makes it really difficult to publicise. Genreless. I don't think I have been. Robbie, I have been in this business a very long time and I've never heard that term. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, John. My family now joke that it's um non non non-genre by non-genre lists, yeah. They joke yeah. about it. So tell me where the, the seed of the story came from. What is what it is you that you wanted to achieve in this storytelling? Oh. I don't know about what I wanted to achieve. I often don't know what I'm really writing or what it really means to me until well after I've written the book and I can look back and then go, oh, that was what I was doing. But, you know, it really did start with my mother. My mother was a, a terrible mother. She um, she used to tell me that I was so ugly she pitied the poor man that would end up married to me. Was she the, the the violent one or was it your father? No, that was my father was very violent as his father had been before him. But my mother, when she had cancer, the doctors came to me and she had about six weeks to live at this stage and the doctors came to me and said, oh, we've diagnosed your mother with borderline personality disorder. Um, we'd like to start her on therapy. And I was like, well, where were you when I was 15? Mm. And what's the point of giving her therapy now? Like she's got weeks left to live so you know she was she um was not an easy mother to have and she had a really poor grasp on truth and when um she was dying she uh, gave me a, a teapot and told me that you know this was um my inheritance and that had been handed down through the family from George V, King George V to my grandfather, and then now she was giving it to me and turned it upside down. There was the op shop sticker still on the bottom. Mm. And, um, you know, look, I actually laughed because I I kind of realised that, you know, what I'd experienced as really hurtful lies a lot in my life were actually an amazing ability of hers to spin a story but the thing that had happened to my mother was that at 13 she had become pregnant to my grandfather's 28-year-old assistant pastor. Mm, God. And this really impacted my teenagehood growing up because, you know, well, for a lot of reasons. And I'd often thought about had her experience when she was 13 made her the way she was or was she already like that and that's what had made her vulnerable to this experience happening, you know. I I don't know. She just became the inspiration for Connie Starr, I suppose. Was Uh, your dad violent towards you and her? Oh, yes. Yeah. What a hard life she had. Yeah. 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 He was just awful. And so writing Connie Starr, I really wanted to give her the happy ending she never got in real life. But I also wanted to create a character that, you know, had that fragility and vulnerability and wasn't quite able to to grab the truth. But then, you know, look at how that inability to grab the truth also became a strength for her and a source of healing. So, yeah. And was it a source of healing for you? What's that, writing the book? Yeah. Yeah. 
I think really I had worked through a lot of the family stuff in my 20s. You know, Mm. my 20s were a really hard time for me and I think that that was when I did a lot of processing. My ex-husband, you know, if we had a fight, I would end up crumpled behind a door in fetal position and I don't think he had any idea what was going on and it really, Mm. I found found my 20s was really when I really... Mm work through a lot of that stuff and a lot of the, I think when you have a childhood that's rotten enough to write about like mine was, you know, it doesn't ever leave you. There's always a whole lot of insecurities around that that never, ever leave you your whole life, but you learn to live with them rather mm. than, I think the idea that, you know, you get through them and they're gone and you're done, it doesn't really exist, but you do learn ways of coping and surviving. Mm. I'm wondering though in writing Connie and writing A Better Life for Her, was that something that you dreamed of? Um, Not really to be honest. Um, When I start to write a book, I start with a beginning and I don't have an end or a middle or anything. I just start and I started with, you know, Connie Starr always having been a, a difficult child and that was it, and I just went from them there, and you know, I discover, I, I discover right, discovery writing is what I do. So, which can sometimes land you in really hot water in the middle of the book because you haven't planned anything, and so you find yourself in this soup that you don't know how to get out of. But um, yeah, I'm very much a discovery writer. I just start with that first couple of sentences and see where they go. And this happened to end up being about Connie Starr, which was happened to end up being influenced by my mother and my grandparents. So, yeah. I like, I like that. Are you um, a person that kind of gets up every morning and gives yourself a word count and this is what I'm doing today? Or are you that, the writer that just gets up and if you're in the mood for writing, you write? In the- oh, God, no, I'm really disciplined. Oh, you are? Oh, yeah, really yeah. disciplined. I, I think it's very hard to do any art form if you're not disciplined about it because, honestly, well, for me, I'm lazy naturally. Like I would never do anything naturally. So I would just <laughs> sit around drinking tea all day. So I have to. I think you might even deserve that some days. So tell me how you approach it. So you, you- If I'm writing a book, I get up every morning. My husband makes me a pot of tea. I have my pot of tea. I go out, I write until I reach 1,500 words and then I stop. And if I reach that 1,500 words quickly, that's fantastic. And some days it's a real slog and I don't reach that 1,500 words quickly, but Mm. that's what I do every day uh, except for one day a week. Mm. I'm writing. Mm. Yeah, I am really disciplined. Yeah, extraordinary. And do you tend tend to write and paint? Are you still painting? I am painting. I've got an exhibition opening next week in Singapore. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So I, um, I'm really interested in painting. I've, um, you know, I started buying uh, bits and pieces a few years ago and some of the names have become names like Ben Quilty and others haven't, but I've got a lovely Australian um, painting collection and I love art a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also photography um, and, and books. I'm very lucky, right? I'm the consumer. <laughs> I'm the person that uh, that takes it all in. Do you do both simultaneously? Oh, look, I, I've tried to work out a way to do both simultaneously and I can if I really put my mind to it, but I haven't been writing so much the last couple of months because I've had the art exhibition coming up, so I've been concentrating on that. Two books sitting there 
waiting to go. So I don't feel any urgency at the moment about writing the next one, even though it's in my head. So can I ask the question, which do you prefer, or is it like choosing a favourite child? Yeah, I don't really have. (laughs) You like both equally? I do, I do. It depends on, I suppose, what I'm wanting to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and how how is it that you came about? Um, talk to me about your painting. Did you? How did you get to an exhibition in Singapore? I. It's going to be at the Red Dot Fine Art Gallery in Singapore, and the gallerist uh, Giorgio there is a, a lovely man, and I'd met him through work, and I didn't really know him terribly well, but I wrote to him and said, you know, look here are my paintings and he kind of went yeah they're not great and um as politely as he could and I went well I'm going to paint every single day until you tell me they are great and that's what I did and it took two years I painted every single day for two years yeah I kept sending him the images and he eventually went this is exhibition ready this is fabulous so yeah. yeah. Do you think painting um, is storytelling for you as oh, well? absolutely it is. Talk to me about the process. I, I do feel like they're both they're both the same in some ways, like it's just yeah. a different way of telling a story for sure. Yeah. Um, I start paintings the same way. I start writing a book with a beginning with no idea of where it's going to end up. Yeah. And does it, it do you apply the same discipline? I do. Mm. Absolutely. I really think that um, I think I heard someone say once, you know, that art is, you know, a small percentage of talent, but, you know, a lot of determination and perseverance and practice. You know, you have to practice your art. Yeah, that's the same with writing, isn't it? I mean, you know, I often find for me, you know, the good story is when the craft and the story are magic. You need both. Yeah, you, yeah. you can't just have good craft with no story and you can't have good story with no craft. Yeah, it often happens though, doesn't it? Like It does. It you does. Know, I, I sometimes feel like I can find a book that's written really well but they can't tell a story or a story that's really a great story but so poorly written and um, trying to find both in one book is sometimes not so easy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Robbie Neal, thank you so much for your time today and uh, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, The book is called The Secret World of Connie Starr. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.